chief scientist at the world's biggest museum. Wildlife forensic scientist and conservation geneticist Rebecca Johnson is a leading researcher in koala conservation. The iconic Aussie marsupial is hostage, of course, to climate change and chlamydia, amongst other things. Dr Johnson is now at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. Before that, she was chief investigator of the Koala Genome Consortium, and she's with us now. Kia ora, good morning. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. So if we can talk about your work in koala conservation, first of all, before we get on to the Smithsonian itself... Um, the first koalas date back 20 million years. What is it that we know about them? Yeah, so over over the last 20 million years, we've had uh, the literature documents uh, probably up to 20 different species of koalas. Uh, we only have one now, and um, the fossil record suggests that that's probably been the case for several hundred thousand years. But over that over that 20 million year period, there was on average three to five species of koalas alive at any one point in time, um, including some gigantic ones. So you're probably familiar with the megafauna, the really large versions of a lot of the mammals that we we know uh, it, during the Pleistocene time. So when it was uh, much cooler, that we had very large versions of many of those species, including koalas. How gigantic were gigantic koalas? Uh, I would say bigger than human size. The, the fossils are quite large. Bigger than humans? <laughs> which is pretty, pretty uh, mind-blowing to imagine, huh? given that the average uh, koala that we have today is about the size of probably a small dog or maybe, in my case, a large cat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, did they look similar to the koalas that we have now, but just huge? They did. Uh, so koalas, their closest relative living today is the wombat. Um, and if you can think about the type of teeth, that koalas and wombat have, they're, they're called diprotodons and that's based on their dentition and they have this, this very specific uh, tooth structure where they have these nipping front teeth and these grinding back teeth. So they always have been distinguishable by those types of features even as far back as 20 million years ago. So now, of course, we only have this one single species left. So what does that mean for how endangered it is and what does it mean for the conservation of it? it that's a it's a great question um, and it it's uh, it's very precious <laughs> as the single it's the only representative of its branch on the evolutionary tree surviving uh, and so that um, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't conserve all species and be really considerate of the type of environment that they need to live in but but koalas are literally out there on their own branch of the evolutionary tree. We have no opportunity to crossbreed them with the close relative, for example. And so um, over time, so one of the things that we have done with the koala genome is one of the cool things you can do with genomics is actually reconstruct what populations looked like over time. And you can see even back to... 100,000 years ago, you can see the populations go up and down and probably you can correlate those to different uh, different climate types. But um, certainly since the humans have arrived, particularly uh, 
the European colonizers in Australia, koalas' populations really dropped. Uh, so, and that, that was not only a natural occurrence as the climate changed, but also uh, European settlers really introduced a lot of extra pressures and uh, things like uh, huge hunting pressure happened once koalas were discovered in the, the early 1800s. And um, that really had an increased impact on koala population sizes. Uh, and then, of course, things like the wildfires that we had in in the summer of 2019-2020, those estimate, uh, are estimated to probably have reduced the population by maybe another 10% in some areas. Uh, so, so, yes, they're very precious is, is the short answer to your question. Mm. What does it mean for the genetics of them? Uh, you have sequenced the koala genome. They have more genes than humans. I suppose what in itself at first does that mean? It's, yeah, it's a, um, it was a project that we started. Uh, there was a, a group of us. This, no genome project can be done single-handedly. They always involve a collaboration of lots of passionate and smart people. And we started that in 2012. And that was, I, at the time, I was uh, at the Australian Museum and we we were a location where people asked us for advice a lot about koala populations, whether or not a road would ha- have impact on a koala, whether or not removal of habitat would have in- impact on a koala population. And um, 2012, if you can think back to that time, genomics was still a relatively new field, particularly for non-model species. So human genomes were fairly well described and lots of research was happening, but not so much on the other species. So we thought that was it was a perfect example of a species that we would sequence a genome for so we could literally get to the molecular level of what these populations looked like and if there was if there were things that we could learn that would improve their conservation outcomes. And so we got together, we sequenced, um, we, we were able to get, unfortunately, we were able to get some samples of individuals that had had to be euthanized. Um, one of them had had chlamydia and another one had been hit by a car. So this is the kind of work that you can really only do opportunistically. And uh, we went about sequencing that genome so that we could have the best reference material so then we could understand a lot more about koalas per se at the genomic level, but also use that information to understand how we might manage their populations. And how genetically diverse, I don't know if this is something that you've been able to learn along the way, but how how diverse is that that one strand species that's left? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. That was that was one of the core questions that we had for this project. And um, before I answer your question, I will draw a comparison between another highly endangered species that probably all of your listeners know, which is the Tasmanian devil. Uh, And that's a species that got down to incredibly low population numbers and had its genome sequenced before the koala um, and through what they learned, what the researchers that led that work learned was that they had almost no diversity at their immune genes, which um, was attributing was attributed to their susceptibility to a particular type of cancer that they were actually 
passing on to each other, which is incredibly rare and was incredibly unexpected. So that was a really good example of a species that had extremely low genetic diversity. And the researchers that then went on to do a lot of conservation on that species had not very much to work with. Uh, Mm. So by comparison, the koala genome that we sequenced and then the subsequent individuals that we added to our database were much more diverse, which um, so they reflect if you think about the if you think about a map of Australia, koalas occur pretty much from down the east coast. So they 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 are in parts of North Queensland, right through Queensland to to Brisbane, to southern Queensland into New South Wales. And then they go all the around all the way around into Victoria and South Australia. Uh, they basically like to live on the coast, so they also, unfortunately for them, overlap with where humans like to live. So you can imagine the kind of pressures that they they face as a as a species as we continue to develop um, in urban environments. And so what we wanted to do was see whether or not there was diversity across that entire range, if you can imagine that slice of coastline. And we did indeed find that. We found that probably these populations had been persisting for tens of thousands of years and there had been some exchange of genome or some exchange of genetic material between animals that were, say, um, the animals that were in southern Queensland actually got, they exchanged a bit with with animals that were in New South Wales. So great example that... um, you don't it's not wise to manage based on a state line for example Mm. um we found that those populations were very persistent even even over very long periods of time and that's really important because from looking at an animal you can't tell that but you can but from looking at the genome of these populations you can see that they've been persisting in these populations for long periods and and it's really important to maintain their ability to continue to reproduce even as we build roads and bridges and and we cut down trees and change the landscape, um, if we want koalas to have their best chance of survival, we know we need to really take that into account. You're listening to RNZ National. It is Saturday morning with Susie Ferguson. My guest is Chief Scientist at the Smithsonian Museum, Rebecca Johnson, also a wildlife forensic scientist and conservation geneticist. Um, I'm interested, Rebecca, in the situation around chlamydia. You mentioned that earlier on. And people are probably aware that chlamydia is one of the great problems that the koalas face. Knowing the genomic map of the animal, what did that give you by way of information around the treatment that koalas could have for chlamydia? Yeah, so that was, uh, that again was one of our core questions for our original collaboration. And one of our collaborators uh, in Queensland led that part of the work. And he was particularly interested in certain immune genes and certain, uh, certain parts of the genome that had been implicated in chlamydia infection. And so they, they were able to identify regions in the koala that were excellent candidates for vaccines for chlamydia. <clears throat> and I understand that they have since rolled out a trial vaccine where they're individually catching koalas, vaccinating them. And um, I, I believe it's pretty successful. 
of course, that does come with a huge resource implication to catch every single koala in the population. Uh, it, it's not quite as successful as it's passed on to to between individuals yet, but um, that that was a really important component of our work because it is something that unfortunately really decimates this species, um, particularly in areas where they have a lot of human contact or a lot of contact that is potentially stressful to them uh our, we what we do know is that the immune system is so complex that um it's it's hard to attribute these types of things to any single piece of the genome but the genome was able to allow them to develop this vaccine which is currently being trialed they have a pretty niche diet of eucalyptus <laughs> which i think is toxic in itself and what does that mean for their digestive system and whether they would be able to to tolerate or I guess absorb antibiotics as a treatment yeah. for chlamydia it's um this again was koalas are fascinating creatures because they have adapted over a very long period of time to eat this incredibly narrow diet so as your listeners probably know they survive mainly on eucalyptus and while there are about 700 species of eucalyptus in Australia they 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 restrict themselves to around about 100 if not less of those species so they're niche within niche um and then we'll the smell of eucalyptus is incredibly distinct and that is because eucalyptus have specialized in producing really high levels of what are called plant secondary metabolites and that's if you're a eucalyptus tree you're trying very hard not to be eaten by pests and bugs and things that might find you tasty and so this is typically a very successful strategy for for a lot of plants to avoid being eaten um koalas adapted to to manage that and and they adapted to such a niche that that's pretty much all they eat and uh if you think about what it is, it's a very low-calorie diet, uh, very high in fibre, and very high in these toxins, which are effectively plant, which are plant secondary metabolites. And so we were absolutely fascinated about how the koala did it, uh, because when it's such a poor-calorie diet, they have to eat a lot to survive. So if we ate the equivalent of what they ate we would die. There is no way that our livers could cope with the level of toxins in that diet. Um, and so that was when we sequenced the genome, it was one of the things that we looked at. And, and you do this through a process called um, comparative genomics. So you look at other genomes that have been sequenced, like the human, like the Tasmanian devil, also the uh, the kangaroo had been sequenced. And you look at these regions that might look particularly different. Most of the regions look very similar because we we share a lot of our genomes because they're very fundamental to our own development and survival. Uh, but what we found was this particular family of um, metabolic enzymes. The koalas had just abundant different enzymes, that, and and all of us have them because we're constantly being exposed to to toxins and things that we need to metabolize in our daily life. But koalas had somehow expanded this suite of enzymes so that they had them in spades. And uh, what we think is happening is that they have just basically this parallel processing situation where they're able to metabolize these toxins 
as fast enough as they can eat them and therefore they, it, it's technically not toxic to them, although I don't think, I think they tried to minimise them uh, where, where possible because we also found that they have a huge uh, diversity of bitter taste receptors. And so, so it's very likely that these plant secondary metabolites probably taste quite bitter. And so koalas have also adapted to have lots of these taste receptors to probably minimise the worst of it, if that makes sense. So what is the situation then for koalas that get chlamydia? I guess vaccination uh, sounds like that might be the best option because doing anything else would probably not be as successful, perhaps. But how did they actually come into contact with the disease in the first place? Is that known? Yeah, it, it's still a it's still a subject of debate in the literature. However, uh, there are many different chlamydia species. I, I think we all are aware of the ones that humans can get. Uh, it's it's not uncommon in fish, so it's something that aquaculture takes into account. For example, it's also something that is common in livestock, and so it's unclear whether or not. Chlamydia was in the population before European arrival, for example, because uh, it's so it cannot be ruled out that chlamydia was brought to Australia with livestock, and and maybe it jumped across a species barrier, or there was enough evolution in that bacteria where it um, it managed to jump into koalas, and they mm. found themselves the appropriate host. And to your point about treatment with antibiotics. Uh, koala, this is something that we did not really get into in the genome, but there are researchers that are looking at the koala's microbiome, so the so the bacterial population that lives in the gut of the koala. They have one of the longest intestines, again, probably not surprisingly, because they need to do so much digesting and processing of that poor calorie diet. Um, and so it is fairly well known among koala carers and koala hospitals that you have to be really careful with the level of antibiotic treatment that you give your koalas so that you don't inadvertently knock out their microbiome, then thereby mm. leaving unable to digest their diet. So it's a, it's a pretty precarious balance that, that um, koala hospitals report. Um, and in fact, the the one of the original individual that we were able to sequence the genome from was a female. Her name was Pacific Chocolate, and she had been in care for some time with a very severe infection. And they had tried everything they could to treat her with antibiotics, but she she basically was wasting away and was it was very unwell. Uh, so it was pretty confronting to see that um, firsthand, but also kind of inspiring that that the work that we do might actually make a difference towards this species. What does chlamydia actually do to koalas? What kind of symptoms do they get? Yeah, so they um, it, they can get an inf- they get an infection that is in their urinary tract. So particularly in females, they end up uh, their bladder becomes incredibly fibrous and it doesn't expand when it gets full. So they they develop this what's called wet bottom because they're constantly leaking urine. Um, and in the very worst case, the chlamydia encases their ovaries, so they're no longer able to, able to ovulate and they become sterile, uh, which obviously has very bad consequences for reproduction. Uh, they can also get it in their eyes and that becomes a terrible um, a, a terrible infection in their eyes to the point that if it's not treated, 
they they close up and they can't see. And if you're trying to cross a road, you can imagine how disadvantaged you are if your eyes are blocked with um, with an infection. Uh, interestingly enough, I well, I was over in Australia not that long ago, and I saw lots of signs on the motorways saying, you know, beware koalas crossing. Um, but that makes a lot of sense now. I didn't realise that it could go to their eyes. Yeah, yeah, it can be pretty. Um, the worst infections are pretty, pretty unpleasant to see, and and uh, from what is described to me, probably very painful for the animals mm. too. We've had a question in from one of our listeners, Anne, who says she recently had an amazing koala cuddle in South Australia. And the keeper said that the koalas there are being decimated by a kidney disease. Is that something that you know anything about? Yeah, so um, that's, I'm really glad that Anne brought up that population. So this is also um, us as humans, we do like to uh, modify our environment a lot. So I mentioned earlier that when Europeans arrived, they discovered koalas, this fascinating creature, and they they were pretty extensively hunted, mainly for their fur. Um, and the South Australian population was effectively uh, cleared out. The, the, it was effectively hunted to extinction and um, and also a large part of the Victorian population. And so some really enthusiastic environmentalists way ahead of their time realised this was happening, you know, in the early 1900s and effectively started their own almost citizen science breeding program of koalas in Victoria. And those animals were eventually the ones that ended up being put back into Adelaide, uh, which I believe was not part of their original range. So when so my dad lives in Adelaide and when I go to visit him, um, the, the best chance of me seeing a koala is in the park just down the road from his house because these koalas uh, were put into this habitat that was fairly novel for them and they did very well. Hmm. And so it is quite likely that you will see a koala in the wild, quote unquote, in, in Adelaide. Um, and, and if you're lucky enough to do something as amazing as see them as close as Anne did, you will see them um, in, in that location as well. Um, unfortunately, the kidney, we think the kidney problem is probably because that population has almost no genetic diversity. Um, and while they, because back in the day when these, these koalas were being rescued, so to speak, um, no one had any idea of genetic diversity and, and how to maximise breeding. They, they were literally just doing the best that they could to keep this, the population going. Um, so, so we think that the, um, this, this oxalate uh, crystals that they end up with in their kidneys is probably the result of that. Um, and that is something that there are researchers in Adelaide and South Australia looking at because it's, again, something that you really want to avoid if you can. Hmm. Thank you very much for the question there, Anne. Um, if we can talk a little bit about the Smithsonian, because you're a long way from home, you're over in the United States, but something like that, being the chief scientist at the Smithsonian has got to be the best gig in your line of work. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. It's a, it's a pretty amazing place. And uh, if it's on anyone's bucket list, I would I would fully reinforce that. It, it's it's a it's quite an incredible institution, and it's so I'm at the National Museum of Natural History, and as you said before, we are the biggest natural history museum in the world. So we have uh, we estimate that we have about 148 million specimens just in our museum, 
uh, and that pretty much documents everything that we know about the natural world and parts of the universe. We also have a, a very substantial meteorite collection. We have work research going on to asteroids. Uh, so, so we cover a lot here at the Smithsonian, and we're just one of 21 museums and a zoo. So, so it is an extensive complex. If you do come visit, uh, you definitely need more than a day, <laughs> and <laughs> you, de- you definitely have to put your walking shoes on. But, um, but it's a really extraordinary institution because it's free. Um, it's it is funded by we're funded by Congress, and we are able to raise our own funds as well. And making it free reduces a lot of barriers to people that might think otherwise about going to a place like this, but also might benefit. So uh, we really are America's museum and the world's museum in that we, everyone is welcome here. Fantastic. It is indeed an amazing museum and uh, collection of museums. Thank you very much for your time today. Really appreciate you joining us. That is Chief Scientist at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History, Dr. Rebecca Johnson, uh, also, of course, an uh, expert on the koala genome, as you were hearing there.